Welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Derek Davis, continuing our conversations about the cultures of consciousness. Uh, just a reminder, there's a big old archive of Expanding Mind shows, and you can go to my own website, technosis.com. That's T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S.com, as probably, probably a lot of my listeners already know. Um, I also have been listing uh, some upcoming events. I'll be doing a lot of events around High Weirdness, which is coming out, you know, end of May, early June. I'm not sure what the official date was. In fact, it's actually kind of interesting. Amazon just kind of decides what the date of publication is that doesn't necessarily have to do with the publisher. They have their own weird metric to, or whatever it is, algorithm to come up with a date. And the date that they gave High Weirdness, July 23rd, uh, which is a, is a synchronistic one, because of course I'm talking about Robert Anton Wilson in, in, the, in the book and uh, his great dream where he wakes up and writes down, Sirius is important, is of course July 23rd. So I, I think that that that's a good sign, except for the fact that the book's going to be out earlier, and I'll be doing a, uh, events starting um, actually at the end of this month. I'll be in New York and Boston. Uh, again, you can check out the website for more details, and then in, July, in June and July, I'll be both here and in Europe. So that's a good reason uh, to check it out there. And again, as always, if you like this show, please consider leaving a positive uh, view, uh, review. You can even say negative things. That's fine. We just like abundance here at Expanding Mind. So one of the, the you know, you got to count the good reasons for getting older. And one of the ones that I've discovered uh, is the curious joy that comes with reading books that were very important to you uh, when you were younger that are still awesome. Uh, because you, you can see them with different eyes. You see yourself being influenced by it. The person that you are now is partly who you are because of these encounters, you know, so I, I reread uh, Beyond Good and Evil uh, about five years ago, and I, I had read other Nietzsche that, uh, you know, in the between, but I hadn't really read that one since uh, as an undergraduate, which, you know, changed my world, that book. And, you know, it's amazing to go, oh my God, how much of my mind is, is in this book, even though I haven't looked at it for, for decades. And so it's something that I've, I've been doing more of, not too much, you don't want to, you know, it gets a little too nostalgic or uh, navel-gazing, but I think it's it's a it's a nice it's a nice part of the uh, the reading mix, uh, and so I was very happy to recently rediscover or reread uh, the book that is the 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 or a portion of which is the topic uh, of our conversation today. Um, we'll be talking with uh, Stephen Yenser, who's a poet and literary critic who has written about this very book, and this very book is James Merrill's The Changing Light at Sandover, uh, which I discovered as an undergraduate at Yale, where I, I, I did a lot of poetry. Uh, I majored in English, and I, I did poetry because uh, I, I love poetry. I love uh, lyric poetry. I love visionary poetry. And there was a wonderful sense of, of all of these things at... Um, uh, at Yale, uh, there was definitely a sensibility around poetry that was uh, quite pervasive and was also fun because it, it took less time to read than the big fat uh, 19th century Victorian novels that other people in the English major <laughs> chose to read. So it gave me more time for other things as well. So poetry poetry uh, was very, very good to me. Um, and uh, I discovered Merrill as part of this uh, reading frenzy. And The Changing Light Sandover is, is his, in some ways his masterpiece, 
uh, certainly his longest poem. It's an enormous poem. I think it's like it's, it has it has three sections and it's uh, and a big coda and it's almost six hundred pages long. And the reason that it's particularly apropos for our conversations here on expanding mind. Uh, where we're diving into consciousness, esotericism, mysticism, uh, visionary culture, pop visionary culture, uh, is that the book is about and compelled by and in uh, in many ways made up of uh, actual Ouija board conversations that Merrill had with his partner, uh, husband, uh, David uh, Jackman, and... Uh, and it comes out of these decades long work of, of doing the Ouija board, which was something they did mostly in private. There was, he wrote about it on occasion. And then after decades of this work, he wrote, um, a relatively long, uh, book of poetry called the book of Ephraim. And the book of Ephraim ended up being just the first part of The Changing Light at Sandover. He wrote two more sections, both of which were much longer and much more weird, much more dense with esotericism and occult uh, history and Atlantis and, uh, you know, um, strange uh, poems of science, as they, as they called it at one point. Um, but the book of Ephraim, which initiates the whole uh, sequence and is filled with just some extraordinary poetry as, as well as some very interesting reflections on what does it mean to encounter some kind of peculiar entity that's speaking back to you through this, uh, through the, this Ouija board, which was, of course, kind of a pop culture spiritualist technology uh, that comes from the, the turn of the century. Uh, James and D- David actually uh, built their own board, and there's a photograph of it in the new edition of the Book of Ephraim, which uh, Stephen, our guest today, annotated and introduced. And it's a really helpful thing in because uh, James Merrill was a very erudite guy, and he loved to have puns and allusions, and it's it's very dense poetry, not in a not in a dry way. I mean, I think he's a very juicy, witty, fun poet in a lot of ways, but there, there's a lot of references in there that you're going to miss. I miss a lot. Uh, and so Stephen's done a great job of filling out a lot of the references that are in uh, this first book of The Changing Light. So I was super happy that it came out because I could, oh, wait, not only can I reread this, but then I can do a show on it because there's something new about it. It's Stephen's book about it. So anyway, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us here uh, on Expanding Mind. Delighted to be with you, Eric. Delighted to uh, have James get some even more exposure. Well, yeah, you know, so I want to ask you, 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 uh, I mean, you recently retired from UCLA, but you've been a literary critic for for quite a long time. You've written lots of books on contemporary poetry, Merrill, Robert Lowell, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Give us a sense of how James Merrill sort of fits within the kind of pantheon of great, you know, American 20th century poets. Uh, I'll be glad to do so. Um, I have to say in advance that I'm biased, um, that uh, James was my friend uh, for 25 years uh, until his death. Um, In fact, uh, he was my best friend. Uh, Now, um, I think that works only the one way. Uh, James was the kind of man that um, 
he was able to be the best friend of many people or at least several people at once. So I don't, uh, I'm not saying that I had a very special position, but James was very special to me. And for 25 years, uh, he was my first reader on everything that I did. Um, and I, uh, I followed him very closely all the way. Um, during that period, I, which began when I had a workshop under his uh, tutelage at the University of Wisconsin, um, I, uh, I, I reviewed his books. I, we had a correspondence. Um, I read all of his work. I felt from the beginning that he was one of the great poets of our time in the latter half of the 20th century. So to um, c come to a kind of pause, I guess, uh, I think that along with Elizabeth Bishop and Robert Lowell and John Ashbery, he's one of the maybe half dozen greatest poets of the last half of the 20th century. And um, for me, he's really at the top of the list. Well, let's let's do some general characterizations about Merrill's work. One thing that I mentioned is uh, you'll encounter, you know, an unusually rich use of language, even for a poet, in the sense that there's a kind of uh, a kind of scintillating play, a, a, a juiciness, a fecundity, and particularly lots of puns and wordplay. Not in a not in a dry sort of um, uh, 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 whatever, overly technical kind of deconstructive sense of wordplay, but wordplay in the sense of puns and allusions and, and, and using figures to refer to other figures in a, in a way that's, that's very delightful, uh, as well as challenging, but, but there's a delight in it that, that seems to me to, is, at least for me personally, has always made him extremely accessible, even as he, he does, you know, ask for, uh, for a high degree of attention. And sometimes you don't know what's going on. It takes a while to figure out what the figure refers to or what the pun is about or what the allusion is about. But there's still a, a just a, a, a kind of exuberance to it that, that is, um, is very compelling. Exuberance is is the right word, I think. Um, he he loved language, uh, even among poets, uh, all of whom I think love language. Uh, but he loved language um, to the exclusion sometimes of, say, ideas. Uh, we, he was much more interested in the word than he was in the idea. Uh, he pretended not to read very much philosophy, for example. Uh, so he. I don't know that he knew beyond good and evil, for example, though he certainly knew some Nietzsche, I think especially uh, Zarathustra. Uh, but in the beginning for him, there was the word. Uh, and as you suggest, the word was a pun. Uh, and everything he, everything he looks at, uh, everything he, that is, thinks about, uh, shows its contrary sides. Uh, so he's a uh, he's a dualist to the core, and this uh, this shows up this tendency toward duplicity uh, in all of his poems. Yeah, and especially this book too. There's so much of a sense about polarity and ones and zeros and uh, uh, splits and reflections and all of these things work. And what's what's wonderful from and now I can speak also as a kind of historian of esotericism is that 
it, it, from 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 that perspective, it's there's nothing like it. There's nothing like the changing light at Sandover because you have someone with this high degree of, of skill and exuberance and playfulness and just deep magic of wordplay, uh, who's also ironic and you know not uh, not a believer, you know, not a seeker in the kind of conventional sense of the term, uh, but a very interested person. And then confronting this uh, remarkable world and care and this series of these uh, uh, you know spectral characters that emerge from this occult practice. Uh, yes, it's just, it's just there's nothing like it. Well, see, right there is the duplicity. I mean, he lived in this world, but especially during those years, which were a couple of decades uh, and more, uh, in which he was engaged with the Ouija board and the spirits, there was the other world. So there were always these two uh, two levels. Uh, and um, so to engage with the one, to engage with the world of nature was to inspire him to uh, engage with the spiritual world. And there's always this interaction between the two. Yeah. And well, uh, what was the initial impulse uh, to, I think I guess it, was, it was as early as the 1950s, um, to yes. start this game? Or was, was it a game? Was it uh, just a trifle that then turned into something more? Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and then also, of course, talking about what it had, how it was an expression of his relationship with David, which is this. You know, that yes. was that's actually before before you answer. I just want to say though that you know I mentioned how when one rereads things, you you see things from different perspectives, and when I was younger, I didn't I didn't recognize one of the great um, uh, wonders of this book is its portrait of a gay marriage. Like, we don't really get a lot of portraits of decades-long life together and the way in which this book emerged from literally both of their hands. Uh, and the, that, that whole side of it was seen much richer than I had noticed uh, when I was younger. So maybe talk about how the very act of uh, consulting the Ouija board emerged as, as part of their relationship or out of their curiosity or what. Whatever it was. Yeah. Um, well, in the beginning, it was a parlor game. And, you know, uh, in the 50s, uh, which is when they uh, did indeed begin doing it, uh, it was a fairly new parlor game. I mean, esotericism goes back to the beginning of time. But the Ouija board uh, was just uh, just about the age of James's father. Uh, it was a late 19th century invention. And uh, somebody in 1953, a former very good friend of his uh, named Frederick Beekner, who uh, later became uh, quite a good novelist, they remained friends uh, throughout their lives, gave him uh, for, for, uh, as, as a gift at Christmas, I think it was, might have been his birthday, in 1953, a Ouija board. And James dabbled in it for a few years, uh, off and on. Then he and David Jackson uh, got together, and then the Ouija board really took off. They were terrific uh, counterparts, David and James. Um, in the Ouija board poems, David is known as the hand, and James is known as the scribe. And when they uh, communicated with the other world, uh, David always had his right hand on the cup. 
and James had his left hand on the cup. They used a cup, a, a cup, excuse me, as a planchette, as a as a pointer, uh, an overturned willowware cup, which uh, was just happened to be handy the first time or two they were doing it, and they continued thereafter to to use the cup, uh, which, by the way, I, I saw it on in operation on a couple of occasions, and it moved at a lightning speed. Wow. So David would have his David had the power of connection with the other world. He was the the lightning rod. Uh, it the spirit's voices flowed through him. James took dicte, uh, as you might in a French lesson, uh, as the letters came down to the board. So James had his left hand on the cup and his right hand free for for writing. David had his right hand on the cup and his left hand free for smoking, uh, which which he, he did uh, continually. And James would write down the letters as they came, which is, I, as I say, very, very quickly, so quickly that uh, the manuscripts show uh, of the, the dictations show just strings of letters. James would have to go back later and divide the words. And, and some of the words were abbreviated, of course, and some of them they had to kind of guess in. The Spirit spoke in different languages, and sometimes uh, it was hard to tell uh, exactly what they meant. But by and, the law, by and large, it was fairly clear. But James had to go back and uh, break up uh, their flow of language in order to get a kind of uh, coherent session. Uh, and they did these sessions, you know, sometimes day after day after day, and sometimes for an hour or two at a sitting. But I, I'm maybe saying more than I need to right here. No, I mean, I, we that's what I mean. If you're, if you're an esotericist, you love all the details, you know, you love all the little bits. And, and in fact, one of the marvels, I really love it when they refer to the, the physical process of what their actual concrete practices and where they're doing it and how that the, 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 this worldly setting of it sort of reflects and, and transforms the, the other world uh, as well. But talking about these transcriptions, um, since you've looked at these manuscripts, when, when we read the poem, we see that all of the, the spirit communication is in, is in all caps, so it's very obvious what's happening. And, and sometimes it takes a little while to figure out who's speaking because there's a number of characters who keep, who keep returning, and, and including you know, the, the, uh, the ghost of, of Auden, and, you know, who's a very major figure later on in the, in the later books. Um, and some of it is quite poetic. Uh, we have rhymes and we have, uh, you know, a nice uh, hexameter and stuff. How much did Merrill edit these sort of, uh, uh, you know, primitive manuscripts, if you will, when he came to composing the actual poem? Um, often the poem, uh, the poems are literal transcriptions. Now, it, it depends a lot on the, on the stage uh, that they were in. Uh, the second book, after the book of Ephraim, they, they always pronounce that, that name, by the way, Ephraim. It's, it's not the good Hebrew. You were much closer to it with Ephraim. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for them, the, the guy on the other end was, was Ephraim, who was a uh, gay Greek Jew, by the way, who was born about, uh, about the time of Christ, A.D. 8, I think, was the, was the date that they gave him. Um, but uh, 
um, where, where was I here? Oh, yes, the, uh, the transcripts. Um, when they were taking down the lessons from um, uh, the, the spirits known as Mirabel and his cohort in the second book of the trilogy, um, the language was often quite obscure uh, and required some, uh, some doctoring. Uh, but when they got into the third book of the trilogy, which is called Scripts for the Pageant, some of which is rhymed in a complicated fashion, and uh, in, in some of it, the, the meter is complicated, too, and changeable. Uh, astonishingly enough, uh, the verse often came over the board in just that form. Now, I, I rely partly here on uh, James's report uh, partly on having seen the the manuscript, and it's still all a little bit mysterious how much doctoring uh, was done uh, in in each in in certain instances. So that's an ambiguous answer, but it's the best I can no, do right no, now. No, it's it's a good one because uh, I mean it's also fun because it, it it not only raises this question of the coherence of the of the messages, meaning that. Whatever we think about the the reality of the of the entities who are announcing themselves, there's some kind of language event that's occurring, and if that language event in a, in that quick stream of transcription, then proves itself to have that degree of formal sophistication after the fact. That's already like a remarkable thing, but of course that kind of remarkable linguistic performance is something that that we know that people can do that there are whatever you want to call them inspired states where manuscripts can be produced of a very high degree of quality and complexity in an incredibly quick period of time that that we can't really associate with a normal uh, work a day, even brilliant kind of consciousness being able to to turn out, and but it raises a, another fun point, which is and, and the question I have for you as someone who's familiar with the liter with the the critical literature on this material is how much this freaked out poetry critics where they were like, oh my God, how you saying like you got the Ouija board and like there's, there's <laughs> he's talking to peacocks and dead poets and and, uh, and Plato. I mean it's absurd. So you know the desire to at once acknowledge that this is a great work but then find some way to say, oh well he was making it up or they were fixing it later or David was actually doing it, which is I know some some people have said that. So can you just reflect a little on how within that the the world of of poetic criticism people just sort of had to deal with this problem that's a whole bevy of questions there let me let me take just a small one that you mentioned there at the end uh, some people seem to think that david had a lot to do with the language this is not true um David was the, the connection, uh, the physical, so to speak, uh, connection. But the language is no more David's than it is James's. It, it's not even as much uh, as it is James's language. So um, 
that is a, a canard, I think, that I, I hope gains no footing. James, uh, David was a, is a terrific guy in many respects, but he, he was not the writer. Uh, David was the hand in the communication. Uh, James was the scribe. And uh, the language is really one way and another uh, traceable to, uh, to James. Um, it was um, very surprising when these uh, books began to be published. And there are people, uh, there were at the beginning, who thought that James had really taken a wrong turn when he composed the, uh, the Book of Ephraim, which is, as you said earlier, quite a different thing from Mirabelle, the second book, Mirabelle's Books of Numbers, the second large book, and then Scripts Through the Pageant is the third. Ephraim is very tame compared to those two. But even then, people, critics, uh, resisted uh, what uh, seemed to them absurd. Pretty quickly, uh, and over, especially over the last, you know, 20 years or so, people have uh, come to understand it much better. And it now, uh, they take it in stride. And it seems much more a composed, finished piece of work that is open to all kinds of critical uh, approaches. There is more resistance these days, I think, to the last two books, but that too has begun to diminish. And along with the communications uh, from the other world, there are many set pieces, uh, some of them kind quite uh, complicated. Uh, there's a villanelle here, a, uh, a canzone there. And these are all in Merrill's own very polished, sophisticated uh, voice, not in the, in the voice of the spirits, though occasionally the spirits too use meter and rhyme. Um, it's very hard to describe in the abstract as I'm now doing because it's such a melange. Uh, it's such a, uh, a galamafri of uh, different styles and works and voices. Some of the people in the other world, like Auden uh, and their friend uh, Maria Mitsotaki, um, are uh, very sophisticated, and their language is elegant and precise. Uh, others uh, in the other world are much less educated, and they don't speak with uh, that kind of uh, elegance. Um, so let me let me um, give you a chance to say something. Oh sure, yes. Sorry about that. No, I I no, always got more I, questions. I always got more questions. Um, I think that uh, what where I would like to take this is into the question of of Merrill's own balance of skepticism and yes. uh, I don't want to say belief, but his recognition that that you know there were others here and that there there, there was relationships that were forming with others. How, how how did he do that? Well, he, as you would guess, uh, he is so deep down duplicitous that he was always skeptical. Uh, he, he, there were, I, I have seen him, I saw him um, when he was really feeling the um, the presence of the these spirits. Uh, I saw him be almost. Um, well, he was in awe at times of the communication that he had established. 
But before and after those moments of awe, uh, he was always skeptical. And he didn't know where the voices were coming from. This is an issue that is raised first in Ephraim, the first book, and then becomes the centerpiece in Mirabelle in the second book. Um, and in the third book, uh, there are three parts to the third book, three main parts, and they are entitled Yes and is the second part, and no is the third, yes and no, as there are, of course, these three um, sections of the Ouija board, too, along with the letters. Uh, there are the, the words yes and no, the and being an ampersand. And James always felt yes and no. The, the, the speakers are outside him and David, or they are inside him and David, or maybe that is the same thing. I mean, if these voices came from inside James and David, how did they get there? So it's it's not an answer to say that James and David are uh, originating the language. Um, the language was other to them in their ordinary lives. Um, so the other world, this world, there's a deep sense in which the two worlds are the same or at least are densely reticulated, densely networked. And James, I think, came to feel this way about the world of the mind and the natural world, and he's certainly not alone. I mean, there are philosophers today. David Chalmers is, is one that you, you might have come across, but uh, the tradition goes back, uh, you know, through, oh, Whitehead, Gregory Bateson, uh, to Spinoza, uh, the, the natural world and the world of God or the spiritual world are integral. Yeah, it's funny, you just, you just named kind of a, like, like my own little pantheon there. That was, oh, great. Those are like Bateson and Spinoza, Chalmers. It's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're into that stuff here on, uh, uh, on Expanding Mind. And, I, and again, you know, part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because I know that there's a lot of people who listen who are, who are into esotericism, who study, who are, who, the idea of, of, of reading a thick book of like occult lore about uh, Atlantis and uh, the, the, you know, the, the origins of, of the devil, uh, what devils really are and how they're not really what they seem to be and, and apocalyptic questions and, you know, what is the nature of God? Is God alone? Is God, you know, connected with others? The you know, that's great. Like, give me that. Oh, you got 500 pages of that. I'll, I'll sit down and do that. But there hasn't been very much attention from within, from within esotericism or people who are interested in it or historians of it in really looking at the specifically esoteric part of this story, meaning what is the cosmology that gets developed? How does it change over time? And that's one of the remarkable things about the book. We start out with Ephraim, and Ephraim gives us a particular picture of how the other world works. And then at the very end of the book, we get a little flash of another order of creature that then we get to meet more in the next book. And then you get a very different picture, in some ways a, a fairly disturbing one. Uh, yes. and, and in fact, the disturbing part of it never really quit. And one of the reasons that I loved reading this again is that for all of the the froth and the puns and the humor and 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 the lightness that's actually woven uh, woven through this. And in fact, I'm going to give an example right now, just because we haven't actually read anything uh, or or even slightly quoted it. But this is just one that popped out of me, just to give you a sense of the the humor and the punning. Good. At one point. Uh, 
<clears throat> at one point, uh, he's uh, he's talking to uh, to Maya. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Maya Darren, the great uh, filmmaker, uh, you know, who went down to Haiti uh, and and wrote a m- remarkable book, Divine Horsemen. She's an extraordinary filmmaker whose works still resonate with powerful insights into consciousness and memory and dream. I mean, really a great figure. And the fact that they were friends, you know, it tells you something more about his French, his ability to have friends and the kind of world that he lived in. And so she's passed on. So they chat with her and he asks about uh, uh, Erzuli, who's this uh, Haitian goddess of, of love. So how about Erzuli? And they, the spirits respond, but she is the queen of heaven. And then they ask, oh, not Mary, not Kuan Yin. And the response, they are all one quintessence. Chanel number five times five times five times five times five. And that, the, just, just that, just the quintessence, the five, the Chanel that's also a channel, and the, the, the juxtaposition of the figures and the willingness to look at a figure like Erzuli, who is even, you know, even for esotericists associated with kind of an intense, very, uh, 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 you know, powerful, but not necessarily queen of heaven in the large cosmological sense. And to bring those figures together and play with the multiplicity and then make a j- good joke about it is, is, is a great example of the kind of, uh, you know, humor that, 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 that punning quality that, uh, that he brings yes. to it, uh, but it's valuable also as an idea about how gods work, how how the quintessence works, and there's tons of stuff like that. Yes, that's a you've chosen a, a very good example, and of course, uh, one of your points is that that lightness is suffused throughout. There are pretty uh, dark passages here and there, and there are some uh, very um, uh, elegant. Um, passages that are, you know, in, in grand style, but that lightness pervades the the poem. Um, and uh, one of the one of the books that James uh, admired uh, much later in life was um, Italo Calvino's uh, Six Memos for the New Millennium, in which he Calvino writes about lightness. That's one of the subjects of the six memos, and another is multiplicity. And uh, so you just touched on both of those aspects uh, in Ephraim that James admired uh, in Calvino and in Proust. Uh, if you can imagine Proust being light, well, you can. James could, uh, and uh, and elsewhere too. Um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a wonderful passage. You're right to see that that pun on Chanel and Channel, and of course that that uh, that line five times five times five times five times five is in perfect uh, trochaic pentameter. So it's a, it's a wonderful mix of well, the the metrical and the specific. Yeah, and what's what's amazing also is the like the, there's so much. I mean, he was such a master of form. He was such a master of form. You don't you don't really notice it. You that's know? right. 
And, and, and like, there was occasionally I'd stop and like get out my old poetry books. I mean, I haven't read, I haven't been reading poetry as intensely at, at all as, as when I was younger. And I'm like, oh yeah, what's this form? And oh, it looks kind of familiar. And then I'd like start to break it down and go, oh my God, this guy's a genius. Like you don't, you don't notice it. You're just flowing along. And, uh, and, and that says something. I mean, what, what, what do you, is there a connection between is there some kind of connection between his love and, and mastery of poetic form and, I don't know, the, the particular experiment with language that's represented by, by the Ouija experiments? Um, well, um, you, you, you're right about his mastery of form. I mean, there is nobody uh, in, I'm going to say, in the 20th century as a whole uh, that had his command of form. There are a couple of people who, um, whose work he studied and learned from immensely. Uh, w. H. Auden is one. Uh, Richard Wilbur, the American poet, uh, is another. But of course, he he read in uh, several languages: French, Italian, German, and uh, he admired masters in all of those languages, and he was able somehow to bring them all into a kind of convergence uh, in his own. But there's nobody who could negotiate um, the formal and the colloquial, the informal, uh, in, in the way that, uh, that he could. Um, I suppose the Ouija board gave him a, uh, an immediate form uh, to to which he he responded. I mean, the letters are right there, and you, I don't know. That's um, I, I'm I'm not sure that I can follow that. Yeah, that yeah. Maybe out. I was just I was just. I mean, you know, you make these stabs. You know, I, one question I'm, that I'm coming up since you mentioned earlier, we didn't didn't actually go into it that much. Is how what how did it feel when you were in the room when they were doing the Ouija board? What what was the what was the overall ambiance? Was it like? Was it playful? Was it really studious? Was it very intense? Was it a little bit uh, sp uh, spooky or enigmatic? What was your experience of yeah. that scene? Uh, it, it it was intense. It was very focused. Uh, it was it was not humorous, uh, and. I couldn't tell. I think both of them, no, James, uh, David didn't seem to actually pay very much attention to the uh, words that were being formed. Um, and neither did James pay all that much attention. The, the thing is, we, we couldn't tell exactly what was being said until later. Um, it, because the, the pointer moved um, much more quickly than, you know, words would move. And so the, the letters flowed together and occasionally something would kind of pop out at you like Napoleon, <laughs> you know, uh, and oh, well, that's, uh, but you wouldn't know what the context was for Napoleon. Uh, and only later when James went back and with a pencil uh, marked off word from word, was he able to tell exactly what the, what the subject was. Uh, there were, you know, hints of what was going on. Um, but you couldn't really get a hold of it. It was too the 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 action of the pointer was too quick. So it was it was it was very concentrated. There wasn't time for for laughter or commentary. Yeah, that's a that's a remarkable thing. I, you know, there's so many interesting characters in. Uh, that, that we encounter in the book of, uh, of Ephraim, not, not least of which is Ephraim himself. But since I, I talked about Maya Darren before, can you talk a little bit about what, what that friendship meant to, to, to James and, what, uh, and how she figures um, in the poem? Because she was such an interesting person yeah. with her own 
connection both to art and to the esoteric and to uh, the avant-garde. Uh, how, how does yes. she figure in his in his work and mind? Well, you know that's the that's an interesting question. Um, some people in the uh, the changing light at Sandover loom much larger in the poem than they did in James's life on a day-to-day basis. I mean, Maya was such a part of the Ouija board experience that he engaged with her on a day-to-day basis in in that way. But they were not uh, particularly uh, close. They didn't see each other a lot uh, during their lives. As with many other uh, young, budding artists, James was a main support for Maya, uh, and he helped fund her her films. He was very interested always in the experimental and in in youth, Uh, and one of the unknown things about his life is how much uh, he uh, helped um, other artists and writers um, financially. He, he did this partly through his Ingram Merrill Foundation, and that was all fairly public. Um, but then he did it on the side, too. He would just, uh, he had, uh, thanks to his father, uh, access to funding, of course, uh, and he spread it around. Uh, he never he never lived lavishly. He lived a rather austere life, actually, given the uh, the money that was deep behind him. Uh, but he managed to uh, g- get uh, some of those funds to a lot of different young aspiring uh, artists. One of whom was Maya Darren. That's fascinating. You know, just to mention it, of course, his his father was was Merrill of Merrill Lynch. And another thing I thought about when reading this is that, you know, the figure of the of the ultra rich of the 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 investment banker, the one percent, is such a, you know, it's such a charged topic in our moment right now. I mean, even compared to, I mean, it's always been an issue. What? How do you deal with these, you know, incredibly wealthy people and these and the science of these wealthy people? And how do you think that that shapes either the the criticism or the reception or the in, in you know in some ways the 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 impression of the uniqueness of, of, of Merrill's work that he did come from such uh, a background and could clearly afford to live the life uh, that he did even though he wasn't uh, as you say uh, you know a, a big spender he was able to afford his life and to live this sort of life of art and beauty um, in a way uh, not so besmirched by the workaday world that everybody else and most poets have to deal with. Um, yeah. He, um, yes. Um, at first, uh, you don't see it very much anymore, I think. But I think this is what happens usually in the course of literary history. At first, people resented uh his um, his family's wealth very much, and they thought that he probably had a, a very easy ride in the world. Um, but you don't hear that much anymore from critics. People don't take that route, uh, and it's good that they don't. Uh, he did not live extravagantly. He was an extremely hard worker. In fact, I think he was probably the hardest working writer that I that I ever knew. Um, he worked hard every day. He was devoted. The idea of devotion is at the heart of Ephraim, 
Uh, there is a long passage from Ephraim in section Q. Of course, each section is uh, named for a letter of the alphabet. And in section Q of Ephraim, Ephraim have a, has a speech about what is important. And what is important from Ephraim's point of view is devotion. Be true to something, true to anything, is, is his motto. And James was always true to his friends, uh, but in the first place, always uh, to his writing. And he worked very, very hard at it. So no, no coal miner uh, is going to do more labor uh, than, than James did. Though, of course, a different kind of labor. And he, he, felt, uh, he felt close and often was physically close. Uh, to people who did work in the real world. So there was nothing standoffish about him. He, he was often on the back of somebody's motorcycle. Uh, you know, it was in the mountains of Greece, say, uh, and his money had something to do with getting him to Greece. But he didn't hang out with royalty in Greece. Uh, he was in the, uh, you know, the ordinary restaurants and bars and with friends uh, and was good friends with people who worked for a living. So he, he was much misunderstood in the beginning. Um, and um, I always admired him for the, uh, for the way he kept that criticism uh, of, his, of his life uh, or his, his sources uh, in, in perspective. One of, his, one of his favorite sayings was, waste not, want not. Hmm. And uh, you can see that at work in his poems. Uh, he's a very economical poet, though he is also a very prolific poet. But his, he's very economical. You have to be economical if the pun is one of your main resources. Uh, it's, an, it's an instance, an exemplar of, uh, of economy. But waste not, want not. And he, he held true to that both in his writerly life and in his real life. Well, since you were, were friends with him, uh, which I didn't know before we, before we talked and, and is, you know, delightful, uh, I want to ask you a little more about the friendship. You talked about he was devoted to his friends. And one of the things that comes through, one of the things that sustains the reader the, that in, in, in enjoyment and through some difficult parts of, of the book is, uh, is, is his friendships and the sense of friendship that he had in this world um, and the way that that translates into these friendships with these others that are coming through the other world. And, and even the sense of towards the end of, of, uh, of, the, final, uh, of the final book, um, Scripts for the Pageant, we have these sort of uh, parties, basically, in the other yes. world. And, the, and you could get a sense of like that there's something very profound about how he related to the world, you know, on a level of fun and, and, and friendship, but also that there was something very profound about the way he related to friends that really informs his whole kind of metaphysical vision in this book. Absolutely. Uh, it's a, <laughs> the product of very private sessions, just two people working for the most part. Well, almost always. Occasionally, somebody would sit in, you know, kind of kibitz. But that was very rare. It was a very private production of uh, these three books. But it's very social. The world that it creates is a very social world. And one of the great mysteries of James Merrill is how he was able to be both so utterly private, uh, so much of his given day, and so social. He had many, many friends. Uh, 
he loved friends. Uh, there was uh, nothing really uh, secretive about him. Um, and, he, you know, he never let anything go in his life. If you were his friend, you were his friend, um, and you would remain his friend. I think it, it comes in part from uh, his parents' breakup, their divorce, when he was just, uh, you know, a kid. He was nine, ten years old when his, when his parents broke up. And he never, never got over that. Uh, he didn't want to get over it, I think. His, his poetry is a, is a means of getting together again a, um, a family, of bringing things together rather than splitting them apart. And so when his friends would break up, as inevitably they did, people would got, get a divorce. I got two divorces in the times, time that I knew James. Um, it never sat well with him. He didn't want people to break up. He didn't understand how they could break up. And he created a, a private life in which it was possible, as it is not for, for many people, to be with different people at once, at different times, but still never to let anything go. Wow, that's fascinating. And then it gives more uh, weight and depth to, again, the fact that uh, one of the stories here is the story of, uh, of a gay marriage, of people who stuck around for decades. You know, that's a bead feed for anybody. Uh, Absolutely. And, and they, had, they had other lovers, Yeah. See. Uh, but they were always still true to each other. How much do you think that that is an important part of the poem as a poem? That quality of whatever you want to call it, domesticity or partnership? I think it's crucial. Um, uh, for one thing, I mean, David was the only person with whom James did the board, really. I mean, he tried it with other people, and occasionally it would, you know, something would come sputtering across, but mostly the connection was a very bad one, and a lot of nonsense um, was involved. So D David and James were partners in, in this undertaking. Um, so I... <laughs> I, I think that they, they didn't have children, obviously, so what they had was Ephraim, and then they had Ephraim's friends, and they had Ephraim's social world, which, you know, had been, much of it had been their social world in the first place, and when their friends died, uh, they still didn't let go of them. They were still there in the other world on the other end of the, uh, the Ouija board. So I, I think that there is a very strong sense in which the Ouija board poems are a domestic product. I think your um, your term is is a good one. Well, and it, and it makes sense in in terms of that uh, that great polarity that we you know the, the the emphasis on polarity we're talking about between the this worldly and the otherworldly. And there's the this worldly that's the world of nature or the world of matter. But there's even more the, the the this worldly of the domestic scene, and so we hear about the the radiator that's not working yeah. in Greece, and you know all this kind of thing, this the clanks and 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 the the wallpaper and getting the wallpaper replaced, and then it turns out that the wallpaper has images in it that kind of make its way into the poem, and you you get a sense of the breakdown of the magic in some sense that's hidden. Uh, you know, in the domestic scene, which is... Yes, the, well, the other world flows into this one. Uh, 
You know, it, throughout Ephraim, there is a stream. Sometimes um, it is Ephraim. Ephraim and the stream are inseparable. It, it, it turns up here as a river. Uh, there is a waterfall. There is this flow, which is the, the flow of creativity, but it flows into the real world. And so the stream turns up, for example, in section Z of, uh, of Ephraim at the very end, where they have to leave their pipes on in, in the winter in Stonington Village in, in Connecticut, where they live, um, so that they don't freeze. And keeping the pipes open there is not a metaphor so much as an extension of the continuation of the contact with the other world. The water still flows in the pipes. The connection is still there even in the coldest, darkest, wintry days with the other world. There's a character in Ephraim who, uh, out in nature on a hike, uh, needs to relieve himself. So, you know, he, t he takes a pee against a tree. Uh, and this stream is also a manifestation of the creative power that is elsewhere, this larger stream or river. So this world and the other world flow together time and again. It's not, it's not a matter of metaphor so much as it is a, a matter of emergence. Absolutely. That's the beautiful word to use, emergence. And I, I could tell that you have that in your, your reference earlier to, uh, to Bateson and such, that there, there is a way to, to look at this connection that's, that's quite, ro quite robust. And, and part of the, 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 the first thing you got to do is to resist the idea that we're talking about allegory or we're talking about metaphor. Exactly. That's, that's not what we're talking about. And, and from an esoteric point of view, you could say, well, this is, this is where language or is really alchemical, that, al that alchemy is not just a metaphor, a way of saying, oh, it's an alchemical transformation of our, whatever. No, it's about as above, so below. It's about the connections right. between levels of reality that are instantiated in your experience in a way that brings those things together. And it can be quite, um, quite powerful. Well, see, and the, the alchemical figure, uh, the central one here, or one central one, is Hermes, uh, Mercury, uh, the communicator of the gods, who is identified pretty closely from time to time with Ephraim. And the thing about Hermes is that he, he, he breaks barriers. As a, as a communicator, he crosses boundaries by his very nature. Uh, he's the psychopomp. Uh, he takes our souls to the other world. Uh, the, the boundary markers in ancient Greece uh, were um, called herms because they were uh, points at which Hermes passed uh, always. He moves among boundaries. He's like the poet in that way. He's, he's like the artist in general, uh, whose staple is metamorphosis, is change, is, is movement is conversion. Um, and, of course, the, the basic realm that is crossed here in these poems is this world and the other world, or the, the world of mind and the world of matter. Yes, and, and uh, that the idea of the source and the current as being a central figure uh, is really interesting because there's an electrical dimension yes. to it as well. Yes, the current is, uh, which is a frequent word, a uh, central word in Ephraim, and the current is indeed electrical uh, as, as well as uh, fluid. Uh, fire and water, too, 
turn into one another under the proper circumstances. And maybe that's the way they are anyway. It's just that we don't always see it. Yeah. And, I, and though we don't, we only have a couple of minutes left uh, uh, here, but uh, what I like about that sort of electrical dimension as well is, is it looks forward to the fact that the, the esoteric world building that we're going to see later in the poem um, is very much about science. And, and so there's a, an extremely interesting meditation on the relationship of, of science and the, the visionary realm, which is, by the way, not at all uh, unusual for, for modern esotericism. Really, from the 19th century forward, all the greats, Gurdjieff, Blavatsky, the uh, Seth uh, speaks books. That they, they're they're actually about navigating the space between this new modern reality of science and the world of vision that keeps coming back, whether we want it to uh, or not. And I see the changing light is just you know absolutely central into that that study of how what what is the visionary dimension of science for us today, including the apocalyptic, including the scary stuff. Well, I think you're you're dead right, and uh, of course James uh, read a lot in that area. He read uh, he read science uh, as well as popular science, as well as some pretty junky science, uh, and he he was able to to use some of it often uh, with with a hint of uh, hint of mockery, um, but uh, he was able to use all of it to to his ends. I think. You're right. Science is is essential to this uh, this trilogy, and some and some junk and pulp too. I'm glad yeah, you mentioned absolutely. that. Uh, I forgot to mention that he he do, he goes deep into those realms as well, and it helps it helps uh, spice the, the the brew. I think in a really it good does. way. Well, Stephen, we're going to have to end it there. It was a really wonderful uh, conversation, and I really and you know part of the whole reason again to do the show is to encourage people to you know. Uh, to, to read Merrill, to read the book of uh, Ephraim, and hopefully go on and, and read the whole Changing Light at Sandover. So thank you very much for, uh, for, for illuminating us today. Thank you. I've had fun. Excellent.